Welcome, everyone, to the Take Control of Your Health podcast. This is Dr. Mercola bringing you the latest cutting-edge interviews to help you achieve optimal health. You can receive more information by subscribing to my free daily newsletter at Mercola.com. Thank you so much for listening. So let's get started with this week's latest program to help you and your family take control of your health. Welcome everyone. This is Dr. Mercola helping you take control of your health. And today we are joined by Gary Tobbs, who has written his fourth book about diet. The first three being good calories, bad calories, a classic. The Diet Delusion in 2008, and why we get fat and what to do about it. And this new book is called The Case for Keto. So an interesting book for sure, and one that we're going to have an interesting discussion on because I um, have some insights that I didn't have before that causes me to question some of the um, thesis, the, the validity of exclusively limiting carbohydrates. So welcome and thank you for joining us today, Gary. Uh, thank you, Joe. It's great to be here. All right. Yeah. So what was the motivation to write this book? You already wrote three books along similar lines. So what were you hoping to achieve with the publication of this book? Okay. Well, first of all, times have changed. since. Oh, you... come on. Oh, really? <laughs> So uh, I don't know if the science has changed all that much, but uh, when I wrote uh, Why We Get Fat in 2011, um, published 2000, Why We Get Fat, uh, I had to, I went back uh, at the last chapter. So this is a discussion of the cause of obesity as much as it is the, um, the you know, how to fix it. If you want to understand, if you want to treat the problem, obviously what we want to do is understand the cause of it. Mm -hmm. um, so in the last chapter, I was really where I addressed the dietary therapy for it, which was a, you know, a very low carb, high fat ketogenic diet. And I, um, I interviewed half a dozen physicians who had converted to our way of thinking and who prescribed these the diet to their patients and uh, half of them had written diet books you know mike and mary dan eads and uh the um there weren't a lot of us out there and now the estimate is there's a few tens of thousands there's a facebook group in canada of women physicians who eat low-carb high-fat diets and there's four thousand of them and there are only about forty thousand women physicians in canada so that's one in ten so what I wanted to do with this book was, first of all, I wanted, to, I wanted myself to understand the challenges to patients and to physicians prescribing this diet. So when you're a physician yourself, you've got your own clinical experience as a journalist. I don't have that. Mm -hmm. So I interviewed about 120, over 120 physicians, plus some dietitians, a few chiropractors here and there, a dentist, uh, about 140 medical practitioners in total to understand their challenges. And because a lot of the people out there now, the physicians out there now prescribing these diets are very smart, very intelligent, uh, perceptive individuals, I finally I could learn from them. A lot of them had gotten into this business because they had read my earlier books and now I got to learn from them in response. So half of it is an explanation for why on some level reducing, well, 
you know, simple argument, why carbohydrates are fattening, regardless of what else might be going on. And why, if somebody wants to uh, control their weight and their blood sugar, they're going to have probably have to restrict carbohydrates to do it. So that's the sort of case for keto. Ultimately, the ketogenic diet is just a diet that maximally restricts the carbohydrates and replaces them with fat. And then uh, the second half of the book is the lessons that I learned. And I believe that everyone can learn to learn how to eat and how to control their weight and blood sugar by, by following this, this eating pattern. Okay. So thank you for that. And the, as you mentioned, the first part of the book goes into the causes of obesity, which has been, you know, sort of a quest to understand for many, many years, well, many centuries, probably. So after your intensive investigation into the science of this and personal experience for nearly two decades, I'm wondering if you can concisely summarize your conclusions as to what you believe to be the cause of obesity. Okay, well, there are several answers to that question also. So one question is, when you're talking about the cause of obesity, are we talking about the cause of the obesity epidemic, uh, which is worldwide? So every population that embraces the Western diet, regardless of what their traditional diet is, will eventually see epidemics of obesity and diabetes. Um, so what is it about the diet? And the argument I made in all my books is that the primary trigger in the Western diet is not how much we eat and exercise, which is a conventional thinking on this, but the refined sugars and uh, grains. So you add basically sugar and white flour to any population to diet, regardless of what their baseline is, and you end up eventually with an epidemic of obesity and diabetes, and probably sugar and sugary beverages are the worst. Um, it might be enough just to add Coca-Cola, which has done its very best to get its Coke machines and the every mm. village and city and block and street and school in the world. And once you start drinking sodas between meals, that could do it. Um, then there's a question of what's the trigger of obesity in human beings. And again, one of my struggles for the past well, 13 years now since the publication of Good Calories, Bad Calories is to get people to understand that this idea that we get fat because we take in more calories and we consume is naive. So that's not the cause of obesity. That's like saying we get rich because we make more money than we spend. And that obesity is a hormonal regulatory disorder. And there are a lot of hormones that play a role in fat accumulation, sex hormones primarily, but the hormones that link our diet to obesity is uh, our insulin and glucagon. I pretty much left glucagon out of the story because I don't think we need to discuss it to know what the dietary treatment is. So when you're talking about the influence of diet on obesity, it's not because we eat too much, not because we eat too much energy dense food. Again, it's the, to me, the glycemic index of the carbohydrates, how quickly we, uh, um, digest the carbohydrates in our diet and then the fructose content of, you know, the, how sweet they are, the sugar content. Um, so that would be the simple response, but again, two different responses for two different questions, obesity epidemic versus 
obesity in an individual. Yes, and uh, you know that's a good summary, I guess, of the conventional thinking on this. At least the advanced nutritionally oriented thinking on it, because there's still some professionals who disagree with this concept. Well, I'd uh, say 98% of the professionals disagree with the concept. So that's really, okay. So that's conventional, a, unconventional thinking. Okay. No, that's an interesting place to start before I go into the point I was seeking to address, but that is a shocking number. So 98% of the clinicians out there in your experience disagree with what you just said. Is that, is that your perception? Well, again, it depends whether we're talking about clinicians or the research community. The research okay, community... Okay, separate the, it out. Separate it out. Yeah, the research community, uh, the, and that means the nutrition research community and the obesity research community, the conventional thinking there. Uh, I, I mean, I hope I'm being pessimistic by saying 98%, but the conventional thinking is obesity is an energy balance disorder. So that you uh, forget 98%. You think it's the vast majority of the vast majority of individuals, okay. yeah. So they've been trained over their the, the their entire professional careers to think of obesity as caused by this imbalance in intake and expenditure. They believe it's a direct consequence of the laws of thermodynamics. Uh, when they do research on this study, if you look at the research, they're often actually not studying why people accumulate excess fat. They're studying appetite and satiety and uh, eating behavior because they think that the reason why they accumulate fat can be explained if you can explain why they eat so much. So the under that's, that's the research community. The physicians themselves, um, at this point, and I say this in the new book, um, well, again, when I first started writing about this in 2001, a, a cover, fame, infamous cover story for the New York Times Magazine, uh, the conventional wisdom was that you got fat because you eat too much, and the primary problem in the diet was the dietary fat because it was so energy dense, so you fooled your stomach, in effect, into taking in more calories than you required. Um, and the idea that a low carbohydrate, high fat or ketogenic diet uh, could be beneficial was laughable at the time. It was considered, um, you know, I ended that article describing myself sitting at a diner in New York, my local diner, eating my usual breakfast of eggs and bacon and sausage and waiting for the heart attack to happen. 20 years later, I'm still waiting for the heart attack, knock on wood. Um, so that was the conventional wisdom. 20 years later, we've accepted the idea that sugar and processed grains are a problem. I think that's become conventional. It's certainly uh, an anti-sugar movement that has been pushed by not mainstream nutritionists, people like us. Uh, Dr. Robert Lustig at UCSF was a major proponent. Um, you know, the community has certainly accepted the problem that sugar is bad and it's got nothing to do with the fat and the diet, they accepting the idea that processed foods are a problem without thinking that processed foods are mainly processed carbohydrates and that that's the reason they're problematic. Um, so we've moved towards that, but I would still bet that the huge percentage of people seeing doctors and dietitians particularly are being told that the way to lose weight is to create a caloric deficit. Okay. And what do you think What's your perception as to the primary reason or reasons that they're un, 
the, these, this community is unwilling to adopt this viewpoint, this wealth of new research and studies that validate what this, this supposition. I don't know. It's an interesting issue because uh, if you look at the U.S. Uh, Department of Agriculture Dietary Guidelines uh, Advisory Committee report this year, they claim they couldn't find a significant amount of low-carbohydrate, uh, let alone ketogenic diet trials to suggest that this is a uh, could be beneficial for the American public at large. And yet there's I was on a website called clinicaltrials.gov yesterday, and they had over 100 trials uh, in the works and about 90 that had been completed or vice versa. Um, an enormous amount of studies have been done over the past 20 years. Uh, name a disease state at the moment from Alzheimer's to traumatic brain injury, and you'll find somebody studying whether or not a ketogenic or low-carb, high-fat diet could be beneficial. Um, so, you know, it's hard for us to understand how they, why when we look at those studies and say this, they're, they're consistent. The American Diabetes Association uh, Nutrition Committee two years ago published uh, their latest consensus report, and they said there was more evidence for a low-carb or very low-carb diet, and it was more consistent evidence in being beneficial for type 2 diabetes than any other diet tested, particularly the ones that had been advocated by mainstream medical authorities, like the Mediterranean diet and the DASH diet. So, Clearly, the studies are out there. I think what we're faced with is a sort of classic combination of cognitive dissonance and groupthink. When you spend your whole life believing something to be true uh, and proselytizing about the truth of that uh, supposed fact, it's very hard to think otherwise, no matter what the research shows. And the you know, literature of cognitive uh, behavioral psychology is full of studies and texts discussing this phenomenon. Um, and then when everyone else you know believes it. Uh, you know, I co-founded this not-for-profit, um, the uh, Nutrition Science Initiative. And uh, we funded research studies, uh, and we work with some of the best, uh, the most influential obesity researchers in the world for you know, the better part of four or five years, and we met with them quarterly. And I used to say to my um, colleagues, you know, we accept when we meet, we'd, we'd meet in a hotel in Bethesda, and we would have dinner together before our first meeting and we would have wine at our dinner and it was all very social and everybody acknowledged that everybody else at the table was intelligent and we would ask are these researchers from Columbia University and the Pennington Biomedical Research Institute about their research and what they were studying at the time we would discuss what we were doing and I would say to my colleagues afterwards you know we've been meeting with these guys for four years and never once have they asked us a question about why we believe something different than what they believe. So they respect our intelligence. They respect our professional credentials, at least the professional credentials of my colleagues who had PhDs and medical degrees as opposed to myself, I'm just a journalist. And yet they showed almost zero interest in why we would believe 
you know, it was as though uh, they were Catholics and we were atheists or they were atheists and we were Catholics and we never had a single discussion about why one group would believe in God and the other would not. And again, it's not unusual when you study the literature on, on cognitive dissonance, which is what happens when a brain is confronted with evidence that something that brain has believed uh, indisputably is wrong. Yeah, I think it results in a confirmational bias that uh, allows us to interpret the messages in a different light. And I know I've been guilty of that in the past. Uh, I've, my first book, best-selling book, was The No-Grain Diet. So I've been into this for two decades now. That was in 2004. Uh, and have adopted it and really didn't adopt keto until over you know, like maybe six, seven years ago when I wrote the book Fat for Fuel. But I, I've embraced keto, uh, but, and, and, and has very similar viewpoints as you discuss in the book. But then because of this confirmational bias, I just chose to believe that I understood all these other issues about processed foods. And it was really the carbs, that were the, the culprit, but I, I've encountered this this year. I've, I've slowly encountered an overwhelming amount of evidence and support that suggests that it's just not that's just not the case. And I'm going to have a pretty strong disagreement with you on your supposition that you said earlier that the vast amount of processed foods is processed carbs. I think processed carbs. You know, again, I. I've embraced this philosophy. So it's not like I don't believe it or haven't tried it. You know, I've been there and done that. But I believe it's not the processed carbs that are the primary culprit. Are they a contributing factor? Unequivocally, no doubt in my mind. But they're relatively minor when you compare, compare it to the processed oils or even more generically, an excess of omega-6 oils, even unprocessed because... We used to have about one to two grams of linoleic acid a day, 150 years ago, one to two grams. We are taking 20 to 30 grams. And, and that may not seem like a big increase, 10, 15 fold. But I think it's bigger than the sugar increase. And it has- Can I interrupt for one second? Yeah, sure. Oh, we're gonna get in a prolonged argument here, even though we mostly disagree. I mean, yeah. we mostly agree about- yeah. So we agree about the carbs. We agree about um, the question even it's when- It's not you, an argument. It's just dialogue. It's a discussion. Yeah. Um, when we talk about, and it's an interesting phenomenon in many ways, when we talk about uh, increases in uh, like linoleic acid uh, being 20 or 30 fold, maybe being bigger than the relative increase in sugar consumption. And what, the way I think about it is just how we're consuming it, how much we're consuming it, how it's influencing fat accumulation over the course of 24 hours. And can this explain all the populations in which you see obesity and diabetes epidemics rather than just the United States? And I've had these discussions with my colleagues as well. So when we review just on the evidence when I talked about the evidence for sugar and refined grains, we know that any population in the world, regardless of what they ate, 
you can find obesity and diabetes epidemics with the addition of sugar and refined grains to their diets, uh, whether it's the Pima Indians in the late 19th century when they were going through famine but had shifted to getting their food from uh, reservation sources rather than hunting and gathering, to Inuits, to Maasai eating mostly animal product diets. The variable left out of that that's typically not integrated into the equation is that they, in addition to increasing carbohydrates, they also had a radical increase in vegetable oils. Not not, for instance, not with the Inuit, excuse me, not with the Pima. Um, it would be interesting to know, and that's what I would like to see from proponents of this hypothesis. Um, you could do it with, um, like I said, sugar and refined grain. You could go to um, uh, you know, Pacific atolls and study the foods, the Western foods they've been getting, and you'll see you know, sugary beverages, alcohol, white bread. Um, if you see a lot of vegetable oil, that's, that's great. That means you haven't been able to refute your hypothesis with that population. With the Inuit, you see them, you know, the, we know they were getting sugar and fine grains. People are not talking about vegetable oils with these populations. So it doesn't mean that vegetable oils aren't playing yeah. a role or that omega-6s aren't playing a role. Well, that you uh, can't have decimation of health with either either variable independently. And that's possible, but I don't think you ever get either variable independently because you're, no. always get the, you're always gonna get the sugar and the fine grains. If we only have a population, which we don't, where we see an increase in vegetable oils, then I'm gonna be impressed that hypothesis starts to become compelling to me, but we don't have those populations because the people selling sugar and white bread did such a good job of it. Yeah, and, and I, I don't bring this point up lightly because it does enter into the, the rest of the book and some of the examples you cite, and I've seen personally and clinically, in which individuals are have a fair amount of success limiting their carbohydrates, but then they reach a plateau in equilibrium and they're not at their optimum metabolic state or metabolic health. And they continue to limit the carbohydrates. and Typically, in that scenario, what I've always didn't didn't really fully understand is that they may be eating high fat, low carbs, and high high protein, but it's a high amount of linoleic acid. So their their selection of foods, the devil's in the details, is relatively high linoleic acid. And the classic example would be an Atkins diet, where they're they they can many people eat bacon liberally. Uh, and bacon is notorious for having high amount of linoleic acid in it. So, you know, when you, when, when you address for that, then I don't think you need to be as assiduously diligent about restricting carbohydrates because well, there's, there's some pretty really profound molecular biological damage that occurs with excess linoleic acid that is far in excess of what occurs with carbohydrates. Uh, with, yeah. And we can, uh, Again, I mean, if I if you know, one of the messages in the second half of my book is in a, uh, basically that it comes down to experimentation. So we can recommend the large changes in the diet that we know will work for everyone. So, you know, sugar and sugary beverages, uh, you know, uh, avoid beer like it's the devil is uh, the first uh, 
who's base. saying who's saying that? Is that yours? Is your that's uh, Jean Anselm Briat Savaron, who in 1825 wrote the most. Famous oh, that's right. That was about the first slow carver, right? Yeah, and uh, Briat Savaron's book has been in print for uh, 200, no, 195 years, and I don't know a lot of books other than the Bible that can make that claim. Nonfiction books. Um, so anyway, we. We know the major issues. And yeah, I mean, again, they, they, if you can get people off of uh, liquid carbs, uh, liquid sugars, you know, added sugars, refined grains, processed grains, uh, they will do better. And now the question is, do they do well enough? And this is why I think this is a secondary issue, because without targeting vegetable oils or linoleic acid, you can make prog you can make people some large proportion of the people who try it, and we don't know what that proportion is, can make uh, enormous benefits in their health. And we have clinical trials showing that. And um, we have accumulating more and more clinical experience with each passing day. Then the question is, how do they fix it from there? So for instance, I'm one of these people who uh, probably eats too much bacon by an excess amount of bacon by your uh, hypothesis, if I get rid of the bacon and replace it with a source of calories, we have to control for the amount of food I'm eating. So we replace mm -hmm. it with something that has a much lower linoleic acid content. Will I get significantly healthier? And yeah. will I notice a difference in my health when I do it? Because if I don't notice a difference in my health, I might decide it's not worth giving up bacon. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree. And the, and it's not necessarily have to give it up. Uh, it's just a matter of hitting the target range of our ancestors, which was about one to 2% of total calories. So if you, you know, like yesterday, I had fasted for a while, and I just I had almost 5000 calories. So that gives me more leverage of having linoleic acid because I have a larger calorie intake. Um, but if as long as you're in that range, you could have your bacon, it, you know, it's just, it's just like you don't want to ever eliminate to all carbohydrates. And that's another discussion we're going to go into. But I've got an, a question for you that has always troubled me clinically. And I'm wondering what your answer is or how you would resolve the, the paradox. The paradox being that clearly people who follow what you've been promoting for nearly two decades tend to do well. You can't deny it. Now, does, does everyone do well? No. And I think that my best guess is that Part of, big part of the reason why they don't is the linoleic acid. But then there's this other group who are the high carb, low fat diets. And there are a large number of clinicians who use this approach to successfully treat many diseases like coronary artery disease and diabetes and obesity. So how do you explain that? They are so diametrically opposed. I mean, what, what is your explanation for why both seem to work? Okay, well, first of all, I don't know how well these other diets work. When I read the documentation from, uh, you know, uh, Ornishes in the world, what we're looking at is um, uh, short-term dietary studies or, cl again, clinical studies showing improvement in uh, cardiovascular disease markers, particularly LDL cholesterol, you don't see studies showing significant improvements in weight or diabetes status, unless they're uncontrolled studies like the kind that Neil Bernard does at the 
you know, with the Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine. So you randomize subjects into to a vegan diet or their usual diet. And the people eating the vegan diet get a lot of intervention to help them continue to eat the vegan diet. And the people eating their usual diet get effectively no intervention. And what you end up with is an uncontrolled trial in which you get the people eating the vegan diet, not just giving up meat and eating a lower fat diet, but you get them you know, giving up the same carbohydrates that you and I think are bad. Uh, what would be interesting is to see what happens to linoleic acid con, uh, consumption in those diets. So I don't actually see the evidence for the kind of dramatic increases in obesity and, and type 2 diabetes, except in places like, uh, you know, Dr. McDougall's uh, promotes a, a diet of primarily starchy vegetables. And he at least used to have on his website uh, what he called super losers. And these are individuals who claim they lost 50, 80, 100 pounds um, eating his starch diet. And they inevitably said they tried Atkins, which is what keto used to be called. And I have no reason to disbelieve them. So I assume that by eating a very, very low fat diet, they managed to control their weight in a way that they couldn't do by eating a very high fat diet. The problem is when they say they did Atkins, we don't know what that means. So we don't know if they did it correctly. And we don't know what their lipid mark, we don't know how long any of us are gonna live from the way we eat. So that's one of the points I make in my book is in order to know if these diets are beneficial, if they're gonna make, if they're gonna really reduce your morbidity and mortality, you need the kind of long-term studies that nobody has. We didn't have them for the low fat movement when we put people on low fat diets. We don't have them for vegan vegetarian diets. And you know, we don't have them for low carb, high fat or ketogenic diets. What we have is studies over a year or two showing that when people go on diets of the kind that I think that I promote and these physicians, tens of thousands of physicians now prescribe to their patients, their patients will get healthier in the short term. We do not do know if that means they'll live longer. We have to assume that healthier in the short term. With these very low fat diets, um, you know, again, there's just, there's all kinds of confounders in the data. And I'll give you an example of this. Um, one of these very low fat diets is a famous rice diet at Duke University. Um, Walter Kemperer, I think was the name of the physician. And I'm sorry, my memory isn't all that good at, uh, whatever it is, seven 30 in the morning here in California. Um, <laughs> So there have been arguments that on this very low-fat diet, this, this, this rice diet, people did remarkably well. Kemperer published articles showing that they improved um, uh, diabetes uh, often resolved on this diet. Obesity you know, diminished uh, considerably. And when you actually looked at the data or read the articles about how this diet was um, communicated. So I heard recently a couple of years ago from a woman who had written a best-selling book on this diet in the mid-1980s. She had lost, I think she had gone down from 250 to 120 pounds on the rice diet. And she actually moved to uh, North Carolina so she could eat at the rice house her three meals a day because the diets were... Um, 
it was about 700 calories. It was about half rice and half lean protein, so skinless chicken breast, and you were allowed to have some fruit with it and a little fruit juice, but you had to split up your 700 calories a day into three meals a day so people would go to the rice house to eat it because they couldn't trust themselves anywhere else. And this woman ended up losing, uh, she said she maintained the weight loss for about five years. And then her mother came to visit her for a month in Raleigh, North Carolina. And she thought she was going to stay for a week and she ended up staying for a month. And over the course of a month, she gained back 30 pounds because she started binge eating because she was hungry all of the time on this diet. And Kemper was famous for berating his patients. Well, if you talk to the physicians who worked with him, he would berate his patients because it was so hard to maintain 700 calories a day. So he might have been starving the body of fat. That's a possibility. And maybe even by yeah. getting rid of the linoleic acid, he was starving the body of fat. But it's not a reasonable, you know, you have no idea whether, uh, and this is an argument against ketogenic diets too, but whether it can be sustained long-term. Yeah, yeah. Um, the argument I make in the book is any diet that requires you to be hungry is going to be that what people who suffer from obesity want, those of us who gain fat easily, we want to, you know, be able to eat like lean people do to eat the satiety. And if we can do that, we'll and be lean, remain relatively lean, then we'll be health, help, happy and healthy and stay on that diet. Yeah. So I in no way, shape or form was endorsing a low fat diet. I never have. Yeah. And I know you certainly don't. Uh, but I was always perplexed why people following that. And, and there is strong anecdotal support that it's successful. But, but I think, I believe the reason why is because they're radically restricting linoleic acid. And in the Kemper diet you mentioned, your, uh, the rice has virtually no linoleic acid. And chicken, which is a terrible meat to consume. I don't recommend it, but especially if it's a breast, white meat and, and skinless, that, that's relatively lower linoleic acid. So uh, it's interesting. Um, I, think, I think one of the problems that we all have in this world, um, you know, I grew up in the physics world and in the physics community, if you, you, you develop a hypothesis or an interpretation of what you're seeing in the data, and then you present it to your colleagues, you know, or in the hallway down your hall from you and you discuss it with them and they tell you, well, did you think about this? Did you think about that? What about this? Have you considered that? And if your hypothesis is still viable after you do all that, then you present a seminar in your department and all the very smart people in your department, their job is to try and explain every way that you screwed up, every mistake you might have made, every detail you might have missed. And if it survives that trial by fire, then you give seminars around the country and around the world to people. And you still haven't published a paper yet. Because what you want to do, the, the odds of you or your hypothesis being wrong are so powerful, are so great that you want to give every smart person you can imagine the opportunity to explain to you how you screwed up before you ever go public in a way that commits you to believing that. Because once you're committed, you're going to not, that's where all the cognitive dissonance sets in and what we're always talking about. And I think in our world, our problem, I know in our, our world, and it's true of me and it's true of my allies and my friends, who I argue we don't get enough feedback. So we don't do the arguing before we go public. We do the arguing 
after we go public. And by that time, we've bought in. Whereas what we need, like, you know, I was reading your, uh, the notes and the transcript with the, with Tucker on linoleic acid. And I wanted to say, yeah, I wanted to be able to sit down with him before he's writing a book and saying, look, here's what we need. We need to know how much the vegetable, what's a linoleic, how does a linoleic acid change in other populations, not just ours? Can we find populations that ate large, quant relatively large quantities of it, but did not have obesity and diabetes and heart disease epidemics? Because if we do, that's, that's a bad sign. You know, is, is, do we have clinical trials? We have a whole host of clinical trials poorly done, uncontrolled, but can we look at those and see what the levels are in how the, you know, cause I know, I mean, it's just, there's a lot, there's, there's a, we're not smart enough to do this on our own. And one of the, our problems in our, I mean, none of us are, and we don't get enough feedback until after we write our books. <laughs> and then it's like, like I said, then we then we're committed. Then it takes a brave man. If I say I was wrong about anything, like I could be talking to you and I say, you know, I was wrong about that. And somebody on Twitter is going to say, but Taub's admitted he's already been wrong. Why should we believe him? So it's sort well, of, it's just. In my book, that's the sign of someone with integrity. And I've, I've admitted made mistakes. I mean, life's a journey. You're always learning, acquiring new information, science advances, and you integrate that into your models. So, uh, and usually it's just a continuous refinement. It's not like a total uh, disregard for everything you've ever known about sugars. And, oh, yeah, actually, sugar is pretty healthy for you. You could have it in an unlimited amount. But that's what we're asking them to do, right? We're asking mm -hmm. the establishment researchers to completely disregard everything they've ever believed. And then, you know, they can't do it any better than we could. We're just, I have these conversations with my colleagues. So one of uh, my NUSI colleagues uh, is a PhD uh, uh, behavioral psychologist who's I think did the best science in the nutrition field because he was studying hunger. Um, and I talk about him at the end of good calories, bad calories. I often say to him, but you know, the fact that we're so convinced we're right doesn't mean we're not totally wrong, right? Because the world is full of quacks who think are completely convinced they're right. And my friend says, well, we are right. <laughs> and but that doesn't yeah, there's this this fundamental principle that that uh Richard Feynman, the Nobel laureate, you know, surely you're joking, Mr. Feynman in his book, he says the first principle of science is you must not fool yourself and you're the easiest person to fool. And that doesn't change for anyone doing this. And we always have to constantly consider the possibility that we've been fooled. Like I said, what we have, you know, the two of us, we have a lot of uh, uh, clinical evidence that people who take our advice get healthier. The question is, are the people who take our advice and get less healthy, do we not hear from them? You know, which is possible, we might live in selection bias bubbles. So we always have to consider the possibility that, you know, I keep wondering, I mean, a good sign is that we don't hear from them. You know, we're not barraged by emails from people who gave up carbohydrates and, you know, turned green. But, um, 
but we always have to consider the possibility that we fool ourselves. It never goes away. And as soon as it does go away, then we have to wonder if we're really deluded. Just to summarize, uh, I, I fully endorse the keto approach with a few modifications. You know, my really refinements, which is, you know, I really believe in, and and uh, clearly admit that most of the evidence at this point is based on uh, correlative epidemiological studies, which seem to be pretty strong. That that is not a randomized, placebo-controlled, definitive proof, of course. And I think to, to, to clearly put the nails in the coffin, you need to do that. But in the, it doesn't mean you can't benefit from this knowledge beforehand. I think that's where science and theory would agree makes a mistake. I mean, you, some, you just don't have a hundred years to figure this thing out. I mean, we only have a limited lifetime. So you have to make the best guess and go for it, assuming there's no long-term downsides. So, and I can't see any down, long-term downsides of this. But anyway, I want, I, I, I want oh, go ahead. You can respond to that, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, again, we, we discuss, well, I discuss in the, the book the need for self-experimentation on some point. So everybody, you know, and the, my book really isn't about keto, despite the title. It's about, low, it's about carbohydrate restriction. More, again, I quote from Briat Savaram because he said at first, more or less rigid abstinence to the carbohydrate-rich foods in the diet. And then you can start to see what other problems you have. And one of my favorite chapters in this book, so the end of the book, I talked about the lessons I learned from these 120 plus physicians I interviewed. And uh, so I have one chapter, one section in which the opening quote is from a, a wonderful uh, spine surgeon in uh, Ohio, who's a vegan and she cannot tolerate animal products. She's just learned over the years. She, she's got a family history of obesity. She used to be obese. She said she should weigh 300 pounds. She's now a type one diabetic. Um, and yet she sustains her health on a keto, vegan ketogenic diet. And she says, it's not a religion. It's about how I feel. And what she learned over the years is that her body couldn't tolerate animal products more, you know, whether it's the the fat content or the protein or some other uh, element of the, the, the animal products, animal source foods, she can't do it. And then I, I compare her to Dr. Georgia Eads, who's a um, uh, psychologist who's now working in, in, in Western Massachusetts. She used to work at Harvard and she has slowly progressed to a carnivore diet because she found that her diet, um, she can't, uh, her body doesn't seem to tolerate vegetable foods, vegetable, uh, plant-based foods. And so it's, again, it's not about how she, it's not a religion. It's just about how she feels. And one of the things, this book, my book originally was called how to think about how to eat. Uh, we had to change the title when some conventional wisdom promoters were publishing a book called How to Eat a month and a half before mine. Uh, <laughs> one of the problems in this field, of course, is knowing who to believe. Um, but I really thought about it as, you know, it's a process of self-experimentation. You fix the big things, which we can all agree on, and even the low-fat proponents and the vegan proponents would define their diets as healthy if they don't include sugar and sugary beverages and white bread. Um, and then you start manipulating the smaller things to find out what your body can tolerate and what can't. And that's part of the process of learning how to think about how to eat. 
You know, we all have, we learned over the, our youth, what we liked and what we didn't like. And then when we became adults, we, we refined our tastes and we learned that some of our dislikes were, were the dislikes of a five-year-old, not of a 25-year-old. And we changed how we ate again. And now rather than doing it based on taste, we're going to do it based on how it makes our bodies feel and perform. And when we do that, you know, that's, that's the one advice we can give everyone to help them get healthier. Okay. So let's get into uh, the carb restriction, which is, you know, the crux of what your uh, teachings are at this point. So um, I don't believe that you're advocating cyclical ketosis. In other words, having low carbs on some days and relatively higher carbs, maybe two, 300% more. Is that a correct summary or am I mistaken? Uh, no, I'm not. A, I, I don't see enough evidence for cyclical keto. Again, I have friends I respect who uh, promote it and say that their patients do tremendous eating this way. Um, I think what worries me about it is a lot of the physicians I interviewed said they think of their work as sort of, so let's set my book in context. When I'm talking to these physicians, I'm talking primarily to family medicine doctors and internal medicine doctors, and their patients have, um, you know, their, their waiting rooms over the previous 30, 40 years have filled up with obese and diabetic patients, and they are confronted day in and day out by basically managing these diseases, hypertension, obesity, diabetes, at best pre-diabetes and overweight. And those are the patients they're trying, they want to reach. And when they want to reach those patients, and many of them said this is a, uh, so this is different than, than, you know, people trying to, you know, the level at which you're trying to refine your health approach. They want those people the, to stop eating the way they've been taught to eat or stop eating their default standard American diet and eat a, you know, whole foods with carbohydrate restriction and, and stop fearing the dietary fat, the healthy sources of fat. And what we're debating is what's a healthy fat or not. Um, and for those people, a lot of them said they think of it as not so much as a weight loss clinic or a weight loss approach, but a carbohydrate addiction program. And if you're doing a carbohydrate addiction program, <clears throat> any addiction program, moderation is, is one of the worst messages you could give. Nobody tells smokers to smoke in moderation or alcoholics to drink in moderation because we know it's going to fail. And so what worries me about cyclical programs, things like that, is that ultimately it's, it's advocating consumption of a product that these individuals are going to want to always eat more of and then sometimes rigid abstinence for people like me for instance rigid abstinence is easier um, so that's the only issue it may actually get them in a healthier metabolic state and i'd love to see clinical trials testing really well done clinical trials but i just don't know enough about it and it would worry me if i were to prescribe it to if i were a physician and were to prescribe it to an obese or diabetic patient um, that they might be unable to sustain a cyclical carb diet. Others might argue that they might be more likely to sustain, and that's why it might be a personal thing. But I just don't know what to make of that. Well, for myself personally, and virtually every one of my clinical associates, friends who are physicians and seeing patients, 
it's nearly universal. We're all recommending and strongly encouraging cyclical ketosis. And I, I will personally go 30 to 50 grams one day and then 100, 150 grams the next day. It's pretty much alternating back and forth. And uh, in, in, in uh, being consistent with the theme of your book with respect to customizing it for yourself, I find that you can monitor it based on either breath or measuring your ketones or breath acetone and or uh, blood sugars and uh, confirming that this level of carbohydrate ingestion is, is optimum for your, op, your metabolism and you're getting the results you want, which is, of course, a relatively low blood sugar. But the problem that I've seen consistently is that if you adopt a consistently low carbohydrate, and I respect the issue that there's a psychological challenge of many that could be addicted to this. And obviously for smoking, which I believe is probably a stronger addiction, I could be wrong, but I think it is, uh, you know, complete abstinence is the only thing that works. I mean, it is so well proven. You can't have a puff, otherwise you're back to smoking. But I, I don't think it's the same for carbohydrates. And I, I believe there are many healthy carbohydrates like fruits, certainly some vegetables, although I have most, most of mine and, and grains like rice. But uh, I, I think you, if, you, if you consistently restrict it, and I've seen this in some of the stories described in your book, that you know, it looks like, I, I don't know if they were measuring it, but the blood sugar tends to rise up because your body needs a certain amount of carbohydrate in the form of glucose to function. And, and if you're not giving it in the diet, then you have to upregulate these systems and you actually become somewhat I, physiological insulin resistance, I think is what it's called. Because if you got if you get a, a sugar bolus in that you'll you'll test diabetic because you just haven't been used to digesting it so you have to make it in your liver yourself. You know, and Joe, I agree with you on so. I mean, what you're saying, I'm not disagreeing with it. I just don't know enough. So as you're talking, remember, I co-founded a not-for-profit, the Fund Nutrition Research, and unfortunately, it's not viable anymore. I still haven't given up on it. Um, you know, I think about, well, it would really be interesting to know and take this outside of the realm of clinical experience and test it. Because if you're right, then I want to be able to, I want to do a second edition of the case for keto and I want this in there. In fact, I'm a little disappointed now that I didn't talk to you for the first edition because then you could have told me, you know, given me this information, I could have talked to your clinical colleagues and then I'd have a chapter about possibly I'd have more, I'd have something in there about cyclical keto. Um, but what I want to do is test it. What I want to say is let's get, you know, a hundred subjects and randomize them and 50 or cyclical part of what I've been trying to do for the 20 years of my career. And on some level, you know, and, and with people like, uh, you know, they, the, you know, we've been getting people to pay attention. We as a movement so that the clinical, research community could do their job and study these facts because until you know 10 years ago or certainly 20 years ago nobody was studying these diets because it was all about low-fat diets and eat less that's all you needed to know about health and now we want now we're getting to the point where we can say look these are really important ideas and let's study them let's find out if they're right in the meanwhile you know absolutely i'm, I'm taking what you're saying and I'm thinking of my own experience 
So I find over the course of 20 years, I've been eating a very low carb diet that there are fewer and fewer things that I can eat because my body responds to them. Maybe had I been doing cyclical keto, you know, I'd uh, not have that issue. Maybe I'd be at the same sort of general weight and health status, but my body would be more tolerant of the foods I'm not eating. And I don't know what the answer is, um, you know, other than self-experimentation ultimately. Uh, let me offer the suggestion that of a relatively inexpensive technology that only existed within the last year or two. I mean, technically existed for longer than that, but it was far more expensive. There are a number of companies out there. NutriSense is the one that I've used, NutriSense.io, and I suspect you've heard of it. Essentially, it allows you to put a 24-7 continuous glucose monitor, otherwise known as a CGM, into your system, which will measure your blood glucose like every five minutes. Uh, and then, you know, I mean, if there, I think it'd be perfect for you. And if you want, I'm happy to set you up with uh, someone in the company and they'll let you try this and can, you, you, you can get your N of one and you'll find is this is area under the curve and you, you can try to, the cyclical keto and see what happens and you can test it over two weeks and get personalized data to know definitively for you if it works. And uh, it's only like $200. It's crazy and expensive for, for two-week analysis. When I did my first CGM, it was like four years ago. And it was like $3,000 uh, because you had to buy like a year supply. It was crazy. So that would be a, a, a resource to help you determine if it's good for you individually. Well, I do think continuous glucose monitors are going to be, and I have one, I holding it up while we were speaking. I got a prescription a while back because I was curious. Uh, you know, one of my issues is I wake up at 3.30 in the morning and I have trouble falling back asleep. And uh, I've been doing, my next book is about diabetes. I've been interviewing a lot of individuals who have type one diabetes. And uh, it seems that what happens to me at 3.30 in the morning is a low blood sugar phenomena. And uh, so I was curious and I haven't put it on yet. Um, I think they'll change how people eat because they can certainly how diabetic people with diabetes eat because they'll see immediately the effects of various foods and mixed meals on their blood sugar. So, you know, I agree with you there. What I don't know is let's say over two weeks, I find that my blood sugar, uh, I have better blood sugar control with cyclical keto. Um, I don't actually know how that, how much of a difference that makes long-term um, to my health status. Uh, and because I'm eating carbohydrates to get the cyclical keto, I almost by definition have to have higher blood sugar, don't I, during those two weeks? Yeah, yeah. So one of the reasons why we're so concerned about lowering our blood sugar, sugar is to limit the production of AGEs, advanced glycation end right. products. But this is really interesting. They're not good for sure, but ALEs, advanced lipoxidation end products, are like 2,000 times more oxidatively toxic than the AGEs. And like no one's talking about those. And that goes all the way back to again, linoleic acid. So, you know, I, I'm so glad you're open to cyclical ketosis because I think that's the, the step, the tip in the door. And I want to share some information with you after our, our interview that I think will help you understand some of the reasons why I've just, we all know, no one recommends processed vegetable oils, but I think it's far deeper than that. And limiting linoleic acid and 
it will help reduce these oxidative linoleic acid metabolites, which are the most pernicious sources of oxidative stress in your body, literally destroying a large portion of mitochondria prematurely and limiting your ability to create ATP. And ultimately, even going into the cytochrome level, giving this negative feedback into cytochrome one, which disrupts the whole thing and makes the, the fat cells, the adipocytes, insulin sensitive, which is the last thing you want. You want them to be insulin resistant mm -hmm. uh, and your somatic cells to be insulin sensitive. Or it's, it's, yeah, insulin sensitive. You could be right. And we're going to have to test it. And listen, Joe, I have to, um, I have to run because I have to get my kids off to school. Okay. All right. They're well, actually going to school today, but it means I have to have. All right. Well, the, the name of the book is The Case for Keto, and uh, it's available at Amazon. It is. And your local bookstore, if your local bookstore is available. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's <laughs> for sure. Okay. okay.